Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Well, here we are on lockdown. How are you? It's Booker of the Perez Hilton Podcast with Chris Booker. We get it. We know you're bored. We're still doing shows. We're keeping you up to date with everything entertainment. A little bit of relief from everything that's going on in the world. You could get the show on Spotify. You could get it on your Apple Podcasts or the Podcast One app. Whatever you do, download and subscribe and get the PHP, the Perez Hilton Podcast with Chris Booker. And everything that's entertainment will be covered. Well, the holidays are over, and the time to set our sights on new goals for the new year is upon us. More important than ever, guys, to support your immune system so that you remain strong, healthy, able to tackle the 2022 goals. One of the biggest ways you can boost your immunity is supporting gut health. It's true. Yep, that's right. Jonathan Jacobs, a physician at UCLA, says the following, the microbe and the immune system are critically intertwined, something we now know. This means that eating the wrong things can affect your immune system. It's tough to, you know, get your diet exactly right. That's why you should think about Biome Breakthrough daily. Biome Breakthrough contains powerful probiotics and prebiotics, as well as a one-of-a-kind ingredient called IGY Max. IGY Max is a patented egg-based protein. It enhances gut health, reverses damage caused by antibiotics, and may help against other immune threats. I don't think I'm overstating it to say that IGY Max is a powerful immune system and something that will really advance the topic. By taking Biome Breakthrough daily, you will feed the good bacteria and build up immunity and hopefully repair the leaky gut. Best time to take Biome Breakthrough is first thing in the morning. Mix it in eight ounce of water and drink it on an empty stomach to experience less of the, eh, perhaps the problems with the gut flora imbalance. So what are you waiting for? Go to biomebreakthrough.com slash Drew and use Dr. Drew 10 to receive 10% off any order. You have a 365-day money-back guarantee. No questions asked. That is at Biome Breakthrough, B-I-O-M-E, Breakthrough, B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H, biomebreakthrough.com slash Drew. Everybody, welcome to Doctor Who Podcast. As usually, you know, I want you to do all those good things to keep us going here. Appreciate it very much. Do check out uh, also the streaming show at uh, drguru.tv, and don't forget to follow us on the various social media platforms. I've been doing some Instagram lives lately, so uh, um, obviously Doctor Drew Pinsky, and also over at uh, TikTok at Doctor Drew, do some live stuff there too. Look for me there. Appreciate the follows, and uh, appreciate you being here today and part of the Corolla Enterprise. Today, my guest is Robert Corn Revere. He is a First Amendment attorney, adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Book is The Mind of the Censor and the Eye of the Beholder, The First Amendment and the Censor's Dilemma. Robert, thank you for joining us. Happy to. Thank you. So the, the obvious place to tell us to start is tell us a little bit about the book. Well, the book just came out uh, last month from Cambridge University Press. Uh, it is a book that basically talks about uh, the value of the First Amendment by looking at examples of those who are censors. What is the mind of the censor and how does that differ from the spirit of liberty, which is something that I think uh, uh, really encompasses the broader value of freedom of expression. And it seems like we live in a time where... In my lifetime, I can't remember it becoming so acute. I mean, I guess in the 60s, there was a lot of similar sorts of different, but phenomenology flying around, around freedom and censorship. Uh, And now it's gotten very strange. I think probably because of social media and the internet where where there are censors that are are extremely arbitrary. This whole whole version, this whole notion of third-party... Fact checkers who who are you know let's just take it from a scientific perspective. I mean they're not scientists. They're not they're not familiar with the literature they're coming on. They have no business being even in the conversation, and yet they are determining what is and is not appropriate for an environment like a public square environment such as social media. And were it not for the fact that social media accepts plenty of money and guidance from the federal government, I mean you can, it's easy to say it's a private enterprise and they're entitled to do whatever they want to do, but there's a little more going on with that. How, how, do, how do you interpret all that? <laughs> well, you're getting right to the most complex questions right away, aren't you? I, I'm afraid uh, so. <laughs> it's the one that's bothering me. <laughs> well, it's, it's bothering many people right now because of 
the whole phenomenon of social media. Keep in mind, we're dealing with an amazing social experiment for the past 25 years with the internet, where for the first time in human history, every individual with access to the internet has access to a worldwide audience. That's never existed in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. And communications policymakers throughout the 20th century looked for ways to get more people able to speak to a broader audience. So we have that for the first time. And the question that you're raising about social media platforms and their content policies goes to whether or not, as you acknowledge, private businesses have the ability or the right to determine what kind of community they want to foster. Uh, It is through the ability of platforms to provide access to the rest of us, to third-party speakers, that the internet uh, is what it is and has created the forum that it is. But uh, by the same token, um, those social media platforms are not the government. They're not the entity that uh, is engaged in, quote, censorship. And maybe we should define that term, because when you look at it in terms of First Amendment law, uh, the, the constitutional protections we have are protections against government actions, not private actions. Uh, typically what we think of when the government restricts speech, that's censorship. When a private entity does, that's editing. <laughs> that's uh, setting setting rules for that private forum. So it, we're talking about very different things. I, I th- where it gets cloudy to me is where I look at the public media, f- excuse me, the social media forum as the public square. I mean, why why is it, phenomenologically different than a physical space we call the public square which is maintained by the government it's not doesn't belong to the government necessarily it may even belong to the businesses surrounding the square but it's maintained by the government for access and for the you know the good of the the tragedies for the tragedy of the commons doesn't develop and so there is access to stand up on a platform and render free speech it's protected by the government. Why can't we do that? Or what, what is different about this electronic space from the actual physical space of public sphere? Okay. There are a couple of things about that. One is what is called the public forum doctrine evolved through the 20th century uh, in uh, First Amendment law. And that is kind of, think of it as kind of like a First Amendment easement on public property. And that is, as the Supreme Court put it, from time immemorial, Public streets, parks, sidewalks have been considered to be places for public communication. And so people will do parades or protests or things like that. And they're subject to very limited rules for what the government can do. Um, A social media platform is different in that it's not owned by the government. It's not governed by constitutional rules. And um, it's certainly um, arguable that those entities should be able to determine what kind of community they want to foster for people who participate in those those uh, um, those spaces. And another main difference is when you're talking about the government, it has a monopoly on control over public property. Uh, and that is, you know, either if, if the government says you can't march in the streets, that applies to everybody. Social media platforms come in all shapes and sizes People who don't like one can move to another. Um, and, you know, some are certainly larger and more influential than others. No question about that. But they weren't always that way. And alternatives have grown up over time. So there are a lot of differences between the private spaces that exert control over what kind of their, their terms and policies, as opposed to government-controlled spaces uh, that are subject to constitutional rules. You know, it, it just occurs to me that uh, it reminds me of uh, Alex de, Alexis de Tocqueville's observations in 1824 that uh, he essentially wrote in, on democracy or democracy in America that yeah. we have the broadest privileges of free speech in the law, but in actuality, because of social constraints, we have some of the most constrained uh, speech, public speech in the world. And that's what I see acting out on social media and to the point where it it becomes obstreperous, becomes a problem. But go ahead. (laughs) Well, you know, that's right. I mean, and and one of the things that I try and cover in the book is the difference between the law of free speech, which is sort of a floor that uh, we all uh, uh, are subject to. And it 
puts constraints on what government can say, but also the culture of free speech, which is the willingness of individuals to accept the fact that others are going to express opinions they don't like, that they may violently disagree with. And yet for the system to work, there has to be this accommodation, this notion that there is a culture of free speech, which gets us into issues like cancel culture. Cancel culture, if you're advocating that someone should be silenced, you have the right to say that. You have a, a legal right to take that position. But it is inconsistent with a culture of free speech where you have your say, the other person has their say, even if you disagree. So I guess the the next question would be, does the government have any responsibility to maintain the culture of free speech? It always scares me a little bit (laughs) when I hear questions like that. Having been a a former FCC official, I have been a a government official with um, uh, part of my job was to look at what kinds of speech should be permitted by broadcasters. Um, And uh, even when tasked with things that seem to be free speech friendly, generally the government gets it wrong. Mm. How did you come up with that idea of what, or what did you use as some sort of guideline or framework for permitted by broadcasters? I've always been curious about that. Well, subject to the Communications Act of 1934, it regulates broadcast licensees in the, quote, public interest. It's a very broad and vague mandate. There are certain specific rules, some that have come and gone over time. One of them was the Fairness Doctrine, which existed from 1949 to 1987. And it's in sort of the vein of those kinds of things that you were asking about. Shouldn't the government foster free expression? The Fairness Doctrine sounded good. It sounded like nothing more than a statement of what you would consider to be um, sound journalistic practices, that broadcasters should cover controversial issues of public importance, and when they do so, they should present both sides or all sides. Uh, The problem is that the policy never functioned in the way that it was designed to or advertised to. Uh, It generally was used as a cudgel by um, government administra- administrations of various political stripes, beginning with the Kennedy administration, by the Nixon administration, to um, use as a sort of a club over broadcasters and to try and restrict programming they didn't like. And that's kind of the way these things tend to operate because we live in a political system. And when you empower the government to do various kinds of things, even with good intentions, uh, the result can be that it's misused or that it simply is incapable of, of functioning the way it does. And the problems, and having experienced this firsthand as an FCC official, um, those problems are magnified when it comes to empowering the government to try and take control of social media platforms, uh, because uh, there's simply no time, there's no way for an administrative system to control something where there are millions and millions of posts coming in every minute. And, and each of those are going to be policed by somebody. Uh, and uh, government is just not well suited to that. Yeah, the whole notion, I agree with that. And the whole notion of permitted by broadcaster can get very capricious, it always seemed to me. I remember back when, was it Colin Powell's son that was the head of the FCC for a minute? Michael Powell, yes. Yeah. He was, and, yeah. And he went after Howard Stern, and overnight, uh, literally, I was getting directives from radio administrators. You know, we were in a so-called safe harbor late at night, which is again another arbitrary yeah. concept. Uh, right. And all of a sudden, a whole ton of words were just completely off the table. You just couldn't use these words, and it was just. Yeah. And they were medical and anatomical and necessary sure. and bizarre. That all of a sudden, one day they're okay, next day not okay. And then, and then it faded over about three to six months. Very yes. wild. Well, actually, I, I, I spend a bit of time in my book talking about that. Uh, chapter 8 is devoted to FCC regulation of indecency. Um, and I was at the agency uh, working with uh, Commissioner James Quello and then Chairman Quello. I was his chief counsel uh, during a number of those controversies. Um, and... What I point out in the book is that the FCC's efforts to police the airwaves for this kind of material uh, was a colossal failure. Uh, and uh, uh, it really began in the 1970s. And it, the the law 
still exists, although the FCC has backed off uh, from enforcing it. Um, but the real problems came about in uh, uh, after um, the FCC moved on from shock jocks like Howard Stern and started trying to police television. And you may recall the wardrobe malfunction from the 19, or 2000, 2004 Super Bowl, mm-hmm. uh, which was a case I handled as a, as a private lawyer, um, and where the FCC issued a $550,000 fine to the CBS network because of this incident that happened and lasted nine sixteenths of a second during the halftime of the Super Bowl. Um, again, it just illustrates the weaknesses of the kind of regulatory approach. And ultimately, the FCC was forced to pay CBS back the $550,000 fine. Crazy. It, it's just the capriciousness of it is what, what I find kind of bizarre. And yes. and I, it as you talk about these restrictions on decency, I guess is what we're talking about, it, it does harken back to... Harking back to so much stuff, right? There's such a historical sweep to all this. But I understand Lenny Bruce was in your crosshairs at one point as well. And and I do see the connection to him, to to comedy and nightclubs. Of course, alongside of that, movies were being sort of censored in some interesting ways. But but, but the whole comedy scene and live performance scene bled into radio eventually. So there is sort of a connection there. There is a really direct connection between... Lenny Bruce is a stand-up comic in the late 50s and early 1960s. And George Carlin, who had an instrumental role in the uh, FCC's treatment of indecency. Now, Lenny was not, didn't get in trouble for anything he did on radio or television. Lenny was actually prosecuted for obscenity, for giving performances at late-night, adult-only nightclubs. And get this, I mean, he was prosecuted in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York, which you would consider to be bastions of, uh, of uh, liberal thought and, and supposedly anti-censorship. But this was the late 50s and early 1960s, and the law of free expression had not developed. And in fact, in 1964, Lenny was convicted in New York for uh, an obscene performance. Uh, he died before his uh, appeal could be perfected. And I wrote a petition to Governor George Pataki in 2004 that resulted in, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 2003, that resulted in his uh, posthumous pardon by the state of New York. But there is a direct connection, as I mentioned, between Lenny Bruce and George Carlin in that when Lenny Bruce was arrested in Chicago at the Gate of Horn nightclub, a young audience member was there. And uh, when the police went around asking people for IDs, the guy said, I don't believe in IDs. So they hauled him up too, <laughs> him in this paddy wagon as Lenny Bruce. Oh my gosh. And when Lenny asked him, why are you here? He just said, I wouldn't show my ID. When he just said to the guy, you schmuck. <laughs> that guy was George Carlin. Wow. <laughs> and so Carlin and Lenny Bruce were, were arrested together. Uh, George Carlin then, of course, very famously went on to do his seven dirty words routine yeah. that essentially formed what the law of indecency was at the FCC. The case involving his monologue, the seven dirty words, went to the Supreme Court. And in 1978, the court upheld the FCC's authority to sanctions broad, uh, sanction broadcast stations for that kind of language. Well, they, they up, did they up, hang on, did they uphold the authority or did they specifically endorse those seven words? They just upheld the authority, right? Well, as a technical matter, they upheld the authority. Right. And what the Supreme Court decision said was that if the FCC wants to admonish a station or sanction them for this kind of uh, uh, broadcast, the First Amendment permits that. But as a matter of practice, the FCC was so surprised to have won the case and they didn't want to be labeled as the national censor. For the next nine years, they would enforce the standard only against the specific seven words of the George Carlin monologue, and, and, which makes it, so far as I can tell, the only time a legal standard was created by a stand-up comic. Not not by a stand-up comic so much as a comedy routine. And doesn't, exactly. doesn't anybody, were they at all ambivalent about the irony of doing so? Did it, did it occur to them that he wasn't being serious when he just capriciously developed these seven words? 
you know, and, and when I say it's the seven degree, it was for people who haven't heard it or don't remember, um, his routine was specifically, specifically, these are the seven words you can't say on television, right? And so then the FCC said, we're going to prove you right. And, and then, um, and, and so as a, as a young 12 year old fan of George Carlin at the time, I memorized that right routine. Of course. And, of course. And he, the words were, do you know what they are? Gary, I'm asking Gary. Oh, see. So it's shit, piss, cunt, fuck, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. And then he goes, tits does not belong on the list. He goes, it sounds like a snack, cheese tits, onion tits, tater tits. He goes on to talk about how the words don't even belong on the list. You you remember the routine very well. And And that is the routine. I remember it vividly. The thing is, the whole reason why tits is on the list is because it's a one-syllable punch at the end. That's funny. Exactly. He, it's and tits, and then he goes on to talk about how that's so silly that it's even on the list—the list that he exactly. he invented. And then he goes on to talk about cocksucker and motherfucker, and he said yep. the problem with those are the the harsh sound cocksucker motherfucker. He goes on about that. He goes not the words, it's the sound, and it's exactly. therefore and therefore shouldn't be on the list. And exactly. so it was, you know, just so ironic to young adolescents like myself at the time that it's like, what's wrong with these adults that they don't they don't seem to be in on the joke? Is what it seemed like mm-hmm. to us. So right. there we were. Uh, neither was the FCC. And like I say, they were they were so surprised that they won the Supreme Court case because the standard they uh, adopted as a legal matter was vague, impossible to administer all of the, the problems we've talked about before. Uh, and so for the next nine years until 1987, they would enforce it only against those specific words. And then under political pressure, broaden the standard to what they called their generic standard. Well, that's interesting. And that that's where it got a little weird. Then later, when you couldn't say, you know, uh, prepuce or something, you know, it just got very weird. Um, yes. Uh, but uh, I want to go back to the comedy again, just for a second. I highlight it again. Is that the reason it was funny? It was so funny. Is comedy is funniest when it's accurate. So him pointing yes. out these things don't belong on the list was f- the funny part of the list. That was what was well, so yeah. funny. And so well, people and are like, yes, it doesn't belong on the list. And yes, you're right about those sounds. That's right. Laughing hysterically at it. And that was the thing that made Carlin so insightful uh, and so funny in that yeah. he loved the English language and he yeah. loved to play with language. Interesting. And he would say things like, um, you can prick your finger, but yes. don't finger your prick. That's right. That's uh, right. And, That's right. you know, talking about the difference between um, my stuff and your shit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, could you move your shit? I want to put my stuff on the table. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and you'd laugh because he was right. He was accurate. It, yeah. was, it was an insight that you didn't normally have brought to the fore. That's what makes great comedy great. New Year's resolutions made easy with Sugar Break. That's right. Reach your goals this year without deprivation. Sugar Break makes it easy to stick to your New Year's resolutions Powerful, scientifically tested plant ingredients, stabilized pre-meal capsules, block carbon sugar absorption. At least that's the claim. As you eat by up to 40%. There you go. You don't have to go without your favorite foods. This helps slow down digestion, minimize excess carbon sugar intake. You know, I'm big on that. Um, listen, one cookie can lead to five or ten. They also have resist strips. That's right. On hand for willpower in your pocket. Indulge in your favorite sweet treat. Then put a resist strip in your mouth when you want to stop and resist instantly blocks sweet taste in foods and it curbs sugar cravings on the spot make 2022 the year of healthy blood sugar the insulin story is becoming increasingly important add reduced your daily routine two capsules in the morning help maintain healthy blood sugar and insulin levels hopefully sugar break also has kids lines to help parents build healthy habits and take a proactive, preventative approach when it comes to sugar consumption, blood sugar, and overall health. Sugar Break products are available nationwide in Target, CVS, Hy-Vee Grocery. Visit Sugar Break, two words, Sugar Break, put together, sugarbreak.com slash Drew. Use code Drew for 15% off your entire order. That's right, discount code applies to any product, sugarbreak.com slash Drew. 
Our friends at Audible let you enjoy audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover, and you can multitask with it, right? With it, right? Audible, you can be doing something else, driving, working out, and of course, Audible offers incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, and you'll discover exclusive Audible originals from top celebrities, renowned experts, and new voices in audio as well. Audible also includes thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, as we, as you know, and members can get full access to a growing selection of audiobooks. And the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. And new members can try Audible free for 30 days. That's crazy. You know, I'm a big fan of audio, not just entertainment, but audio information. You can grow. You can be working out, doing something, and expanding your mind. That's right. And I want you to go to audible.com slash Dr. Drew or text Dr. Drew, D-R-D-R-E-W, to 500-500. Again, that's Dr. Drew to 500-500. That's right. Check it out. You will not be sorry you did it. Freshly has delicious meals, healthy meals. That's right. Chef-made, nutrient-packed, delivered straight to your door. No cooking required. Fresh, never frozen. Use that Freshly website or app to find meals that fit your lifestyle with plans that work for your dietary needs, preferences, taste, and family size. Choose from over 50 nutritionist-designed entrees like their classic steak peppercorn, multi-serve sides like their masterful mac and cheese, or their new line of plant-based meals if that's your preference. Skip the grocery store and all the dirty dishes. Your meals arrive cooked and fresh every week. New meals are added weekly, so you're never stuck eating the same thing over and over. Stop stressing about dinner and shopping. Right now, Freshly is offering our listeners $40 off your first two orders when you go to Freshly.com slash Drew. That is Freshly, F-R-E-S-H-L-Y dot com slash Drew. One more time, that is $40 off at Freshly.com slash Dr. Drew. So, so um, I want to talk a little more about not specifically libertarianism so much as the 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 issue of freedom today. It, it feels like it's come up; it's it's on people's lips a lot. Um, there's sort of there's a lot of pushback against overreach from a public health standpoint, and overreach from the standpoint of uh, what we've been discussing on social media. Is there something different about this landscape? I, I've been sort of struggling with it in my own mind. Like, what, what, what? I'm trying to understand what's going on, and I'm hoping that maybe you have some insights into that. And and is this something? I guess the way I like always start like framing something like this is: Have we been through something like this before? Is this is there a historical antecedents for this? Well, I mean. There are historical antecedents for most of the things that we're going through, including the uh, uh, the uh, flu, uh, um, nineteen eighteen flu, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, and and many of the kinds of public health measures that were enacted then are things that we're going through now. Although, you know, like many things, that was lost to history until we're forced to repeat that. That, that well, cycle. yeah, but but um, I I've read a lot of that material now, having took, taken a good look at it, and and a lot of it there was a lot of you know, of um, similar kinds of uh, policies put in place and then a lot of similar sort of pushbacks. There was anti-maskers and things. But but there was a general acknowledgement, like, we can't ask people to do that. I was like, you got to be kidding. We can't. That's ridiculous. And shut businesses down? No. Okay, we can't do that. Make everybody wear a mask? Well, we can try, but and we've got to pressure them socially. But as a government policy, that's it's ridiculous. It's like you know, putting a noose around some or whatever. It's putting a, you know, making them whatever. You can't, for, we, we're not in our, that position. And this time around, governors that took that position, which was, hey, as a governor, this is not my job to make you do things. Here's what I would like you to do. Here's what our public health system is telling you to do. But for me to mandate it, to force it, that really wasn't happening in 1918. At least is the best I could read the literature. Some some cities would do things like that, like San Francisco sort of did. Right, I, I, but, but that yeah. but it wasn't a governor. It wasn't the certainly wasn't the federal government. So talk to me about that for a minute. Well, I'm I'm not an expert in the pandemic of, of 1918 or, or this one either. I mean, I, I've seen certain measures that I think um, are overreach. I think uh, there's a concern about uh, the executive power generally, um, but. Uh, 
you know, you kind of have to take it case by case. I yeah, have yeah. General okay, I, I get what you're saying, and I understand that that's that's how your mind as a lawyer is specifically trained. So it's very unfair to you know ask for anything sort of global in general. But but the idea, I guess, it, it looks to me like let me I should frame it this way. That's a more of a legal question. Do you expect to see challenges in the courts? Because it, it feels like that's where this is kind of going. Uh, there, oh, there as you said, many. yeah, as you said, there's overreach. Like, let's just take the issue of you know outdoor dining made illegal in Cal- Southern California. It was just and or lying down on the beach. The most insane, incompetent, bizarre, capricious, irrational policies. And it seems like those things are being tested in the court, but they're being upheld. And so, so go ahead. It's been going both. It, it, it's been going both ways, really. And and you kind of, as I say, you kind of have to take a particular case. For example, I handled a case in New Jersey, uh, where the question was where um, uh, church services were permitted and people to gather right. in churches, right. but not in movie theaters. Right. And uh, <laughs> you can, uh, you know argue what the health effects for one or the other or, or both, but it doesn't seem rational to permit people to gather in church and sing and do the kinds of things you do in church services while you're not permitting them to go to movie theaters with appropriate health protocols. No, let's be clear. Let's be here from a public health standpoint, not rational. It's not, it doesn't seem rational because it, it is not rational, but that's not the issue, right? Yeah. Particularly since people are encouraged to be quiet yeah. uh, when they're yes. watching a movie, as right. opposed to singing and fellowshipping and doing the things they do right. in the church service. Right. And so, how did that play out? How did that? What was the? What was at issue? <laughs> well, um, we were not successful in getting an injunction against the state, notwithstanding the, the difference in in treatment. But ultimately, the uh, the restrictions were loosened, so it didn't go further than that. I would think just the church-state separation would be uh, sufficient to sort of push them back a bit. One, one would think. <laughs> oh my God! See, to me, that's like wow. They, they aren't aren't people constitutional lawyers standing up and going, whoa, "Whoa, whoa! We have crossed into territory that I don't think we've been in before." Well, one of the things that uh, is is so often true in the law is that at the time of an emergency. Uh, courts are willing to be more flexible than they are in other times. And then it's only in, in hindsight that uh, we see sort of a, a court's correction being made by, by the courts. And, uh, you know, I think there was a general reluctance uh, by um, um, certain judges to interfere with um, what the, the uh, governors were doing at the time. And then there was a, a, um, a, series of decisions by the Supreme Court striking down restrictions um, on uh, on church attendance uh, under the protections of the First Amendment for free, free exercise of religion. And while, you know, you can have the continuing arguments about whether or not there should be discrimination against different First Amendment protected activities, nonetheless, I think the uh, the court was reasserting the primacy of Bill of Rights over that kind of executive action. I'm guessing back to uh, the court in an emergency uh, being more lenient, I guess the classic is Lincoln and habeas corpus, right? Isn't that what everyone sort of points at? Yeah, Lincoln and habeas corpus or the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. Well, Um, one was a success and one was not. (laughs) One was a bad (laughs) idea, right? I mean, the habeas corpus sort of held and the internment was a horrible thing. Well, it was a horrible thing. Um, And, uh, you know, I think we've learned – this is an example of where, at the time, the court upheld the action, but I then see. later has essentially repudiated it. I, I think see. that's true quite often. And what I find during emergencies is that certain people will try and point to these cautionary tales. Others will point to these past abuses and describe them as precedent. <laughs> so, oh. again, the, the arguments for um, what kinds of limits should be imposed keep going forward. Yeah, it is it is a, an, an interesting time. Do you, I, I always wonder how we, um, I don't know, this is kind of an unfair question, but h- how these things you know, continue to mill through the courts, they seem expensive. And so I don't understand how that gets sort of funded and how, how it keeps, you know, how we are able to actually see these things through. <laughs> Are there are there defense funds or something? Are there things out there that get people get? It's a variety of things. I mean, sometimes where private interests are affected and they have the resources to to take those actions, 
they do that. Other times, lawyers will get engaged in, in matters on a pro bono basis. Uh, I do quite a bit of pro bono work, um, and depending on if I have an interest in the case. Right. Uh, and, and sometimes people will spring forward and, and, and provide uh, resources to help assist others. One way or the other, um, these case, these matters get litigated, and uh, we develop a continuous body. So the fact that, that the courts are upholding or, or staying out of, or choosing to stay out of, I guess would be a proper way to say it, the government particularly the governor's policies. And we're all sort of looking at this and saying, this is overreach. This is too much. This is, we don't ever want this to happen again. Is, is something, are they going to, is one judge going to suddenly stand up and go, you know what, uh, this doesn't look sane to me and we're going to have to push back on it. It just seems like it just takes a little bit of courage as much as anything, or at least, or maybe a medical <laughs> argument in, in the, in the courtroom. All of the above. And I think what you'll find is that there are a range of opinions. Some have upheld measures, some have not. I haven't done a, a survey since the case I, I was working on was, was in the courts. Um, but just from following the news generally, you can see some decisions upholding uh, restrictions and others not. Uh, you have to look at it case by case. Yeah, you have to look you, you, it's, it, it's, it's a hard way to think when you're not an attorney. I totally understand. Um, so now... Are, are there things about the present moment that bother you, keep you up at night, things you've learned from writing the book that, that sort of rang, you know, rile you a bit, that, that have you uncomfortable or, or concerned? Um, yeah, there are. I mean, one thing I've learned from, from the book is that you see these moral panics, these notions of, of what should be censored uh, sort of recurring in history through through various media, through various issues. In, in American uh, not, American history or, or history generally you're talking about? Well, I mean, generally, the history of the world is there's yeah, all, that, censorship right? all the time. Right. Uh, I mean, I just, I, it, just, it just feels like 1789 we, to me for, for, you know, 1789 we, Paris, uh, a lot of the stuff that goes on today, but okay. Yeah. Right. I mean, no, no, the history of, of, of censorship in the world is long and brutal, and, and the United States, as it developed uh, as an Enlightenment project, um, uh, really broke the mold in trying to set free expression as the norm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think for the most part, we have succeeded and we continue to try and build on, on those past successes. But there are always challenges and there are challenges now. And, and you ask what keeps me up at night. I think one of the things that, that I find most troublesome is the high degree of polarization in society. Nobody's listening to anybody else. And it happens at a particularly ironic time in that, as I mentioned earlier, for the first time in human history, we have a medium that allows everyone to connect to the world, mm -hmm. to speak to the world that they want. We also have the ability through a smartphone to draw on almost the sum total of human knowledge at, at an instant. Uh, you can fact check anything that you want. Uh, you know, you might not sort instantly of. find the right answer, but yeah. uh, still you have access to yeah. sources of information that are unprecedented in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. And yet when it comes to people actually having dialogue and using that ability to fact check, to create bridges, to have better understanding, to have dialogue, that has broken down. And part of it is uh, because, uh, um, you know, people are more interested in, in simply shouting across the chasm than by engaging in dialogue with each other. And that, the polarization is something that I find incredibly troublesome. Any theories as to why we're there and what can be done? Well, I mean, there, I don't think there is any one cause and I don't think there's any magic bullet that can, can fix it. I think there are a variety of things. I mean, consider the fact that when we were kids, there were three broadcast networks. Yeah. Uh, the broadcast networks had 23 hours a day to prepare newscasts uh, that you know, were very professionally produced. They were gatekeepers, uh, which some people saw as a bug. Uh, when you look back at, on it now, it seems like that really is a feature of the system, that you had mm -hmm. standards of professionalism that uh, um, gave, through those sources, uh, sort of a common set of facts that people could draw and they could disagree with them. They could argue endlessly about uh, whether or not uh, they were getting all of the news or the straight news, but nonetheless, there was at least 
a, a place for the beginning of the dialogue. And now, um, since sources of information come from everywhere, uh, including an endless number of channels and uh, any person who decides to get on the internet and, and uh, say whatever they want, people have to find a way of determining what sources of information they <laughs> They can trust. So again, many causes and what the solution is. Again, I don't think there's any one quick fix. I don't think having the government step in to fix it is going to do that. And in my experience, it only makes it worse. And what we really need, and if again, not a quick, quick fix or a, a silver bullet solution, what we need is education. We need education in history, in civics, in media literacy and in critical thinking. Those are the areas where we really need to have those so that we can have the beginnings of a basis for a civil conversation. And yet we're moving in the other direction in terms of our educational sort of uh, emphasis. It's funny. I was, I was driving in this morning. I was thinking, I went to a liberal arts college and I was, um, the college sent me some sort of, you know, Merry Christmas or something. And I thought, I I don't recognize my college. I don't recognize it anymore. And then I thought, and I thought, yeah, they started losing me about, 15 years ago when they had like television studies and I thought they don't need television studies. They need anthropology and philosophy and exposure to physics and math. That's, that's a liberal arts. Not everyone's going to get a liberal arts education, but at least the places that provide liberal arts, edu- quality liberal arts education should be doing that. And and it's just gone the other way. And, and the fact that, and, and you know, obviously critical thought is the under, you know, history and it just, you know, the great thoughts and critical thought. That, that's really what people need exposed to, exposure to. Yeah. Or the history need of thought. to be able to evaluate the information they get. Because yeah. rather than having um, a, a limited number of mediators yeah. and gatekeepers who are going to do that for us, it's now up to us. Yeah, I was just so, going to say, I just going to say, let, let me make a pitch. Let me make a pitch to my listeners. I, I want you all to go forward. There's a lot of smart people out there that didn't that were failed by the educational system. In my humble opinion, Carol is one of them. You have access to all that information just through podcasts. You can do it while you're working out, while you're driving. There are historical podcasts, philosophy podcasts. Anthrop- Go expose yourself to the great thoughts and the great. There, listen to Sean Carroll and his physics podcast, so you get a sense of how physics works. Expose yourself to these things. Now, ideally. I'd like you to sit down and spend a couple of weeks solving problems, like math problems or something, and learning how to work through problems that you can't figure out. That's a really important part of critical reasoning. But I'll accept just exposure to the thoughts. Please go do that, everybody. That, and apart from those sort of basic educational background building blocks, seek out people who disagree with you, mm. right? Seek out divergent thoughts. Uh, so many people simply want to spend time in an echo chamber where yeah. all they hear are people who agree with them. I can't imagine. And rather than shouting it's down the people who disagree me. and not find out why they believe what they do, mm-hmm. have a discussion with someone who you fundamentally disagree with and see where your common humanity lies. Yeah, I, I could not agree more strongly. But uh, so, yeah, I think you're right in terms of causation on all. I, I, it's obviously the solution that we're talking about. And I, I'm with you on that. May, may, I hope we're not Pollyannish in terms of, uh, you know, hoping that that's something that can actually happen. But the cause, I, I think, I think it is like you said that we had news that had features that we could rely on or at least understand. And then I think people thought cable news was that same feature, had that same feature, which it does not. Essentially, it's 23- and 24-year-olds scrambling to pull stories together they think will capture eyes and with no other concern, none, zero, uh, than capturing the eyes and and being first. That's the other thing that cable news uh, focuses on. And then social media, obviously, the same kind of phenomenon where there's stories piling out that uh, gratify people. And then the pandemic was superimposed on all of that, and so everyone's emotions got yes. weirdly amplified. But I feel like another solution, in addition to education, and you put media literacy in in, in the in the mix. I'm not sure we need formal training in media literacy literacy so much as we need to just pay attention right now. Right now, you pay attention a little bit, and you will see the majority, and I mean the majority of what you see on cable news, social media, is at least a distortion, if not fake. And I will. And, and that's what, it it comes down to critical thinking yeah. and uh, the ability to 
understand and deconstruct the information that you're presented. It's pretty easy. It's pretty easy. I just, I think about lying down. We were not allowed to lie down on the beach. That was, that was the, the mandate of the California health department. It's like, that's incompetence. And let's call it out what it is. Let's not go, what are you going to do? How are you going to get people not to lie down? No, this is incompetence. It's incompetence. And you, you know that you just look at it and call it what it is. But yes, uh, people, people can sort these things out. Ah, shoot. Here's the one thing COVID does to me is it blocks my thinking at least once an hour. At least once an hour, people hear me say, God damn, what was I going to say? And then it comes back two minutes later. So, which is different than aging because when it's eight, when it's aging related block, it does not come back or maybe it comes back the next day. <laughs> uh, so, but I, I was talking about the, the, oh yeah, the, the fakeness and, and the, this is what I wanted to say and I want to ask you about, which is, see, I told you it comes back, is that most of the fake, uh, phenomenon in the news and social media is somebody saying, interpreting, or or expressing outrage at what somebody said that is in fact not what somebody said. It's just their sense of it and their outrage to it, and so that becomes the viral story. It's never, it's very rarely now actually because people are reasonable. It's rarely what somebody actually said. It's what somebody said they said, and then whew, that's the story. Well, there's that. Plus, uh, you know, the whole question of whether or not what somebody said is actually news. Um, I think it was Attila the Hun who said, what are words but angry little puffs of air? Mm. Uh, as a First Amendment lawyer, I, I don't want to discount the power of language or the importance of it because I've spent my entire career defending the ability of people to use language of various kinds. Uh, but I had a sort of a rule of thumb, and I use it when I read the paper in the morning. <laughs> yes, I'm actually that kind of dinosaur that reads newspapers. Um, but I would do sort of a triage of the kinds of stories that I thought were important. Um, if they are an opinion piece by someone whose opinion I, I think uh, has value, whether or not I agree with them, um, I, I will go to those first. I will also look for, you know, important events and breaking news stories. But if from looking at the headline, uh, the story is simply somebody said something Mm. or worse, a politician said something, Mm. I can put those aside. That's That's not really news. That's good. That's That's what's flying around everywhere. That's what captures the eyes. That's why they put it up there. That's what captures social media clicks. That's why they do it. Well, I think you've heard me talk about all form before. It's sofa, chair. They make amazing furniture. You pick it out online, and you can get any configuration, any kind of material and colors you want or the bases. They're just high-quality product, and it just arrives at your door. And if getting a sofa without getting into the store sounds a little risky, you do not need to worry. You get 100 days to decide if you want to keep it. That's more than three months. And if you don't love it, they'll pick it up for free and they'll give you a full refund. They even offer a forever warranty, literally forever for the furniture. All Form will even send you a free swatch kit so you can see all the different colors and fabrics. And they offer a ton. See what works with your style and your room. It really is so convenient and the quality is is there. You'll see. To find your perfect sofa, check out Allform, A-L-L-F-O-R-M, allform.com slash Drew. And Allform is also offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash Drew. You don't want to miss this deal. You'll love the Allform furniture. I suggest you check it out, allform.com slash Drew. If you check it out, you're, you're going to buy furniture. What they have there is really, really good. We live on their furniture, as a matter of fact. BetterHelp, everybody. Of course, BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And I've always said that the, the stigma around mental health services is such that I think the, the one of the big barriers to getting treatment is people don't like to sit in a therapist's waiting room. They don't even like to see the therapist. They don't have to. They don't want to with BetterHelp. Of course, BetterHelp is more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. I've sent family. I've sent patients. Give it a try. See why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. And for the Dr. Drew Podcast listeners, get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com dot com slash drew again customize online therapy you do not have to see anyone on camera it's video phone even live chat sessions dr drew podcast listeners get 10 percent off at betterhelp.com 
slash Drew. That is better. H-E-L-P dot com. Well, AMCM, I keep reminding you that health insurance doesn't necessarily cover the full cost of an emergency medical flight. Even with comprehensive coverage, you can get blasted with a substantial deductible or co-pays. Protect your family, protect your finances with an Air Medicare Network membership. As a member, if an emergency arises, the expenses of air medical transport is completely covered when flown by an AMCN provider. Membership costs as little as $85 a year and covers your entire household every day, even when you're away from home. That is just pennies a day. And we all know the unexpected can happen. Be prepared with an AMCN membership. Protection no family should do without. And for a limited time, as a Dr. Drew podcast listener, you will get up to a $50 e-gift card when you join. Makes it really pennies a day, less than pennies a day. Visit airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash Drew and use that code Drew. Do Do you ever read... I find myself reading opinions of people I specifically don't value and don't agree with just to see what they're thinking, just to kind of go, oh, my well, God. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And and that's one of the reasons why I would start by reading the op-ed pages, because I want to see what the arguments are that are out there. Yeah. Why do people take the positions that they take? And it's important to understand those perspectives. And now and then, if you're open to ideas, you'll find that your opinion changes. Right. When you it with new well, that's that to me is the most thrilling thing in the world. I mean, that's gross. Yes. I love my, I love changing my opinion. Uh, why people it don't is. understand that that's a, a glorious thing? It's weird to me. That's weird. And it's one of the reasons why it's so important to seek out people you don't agree with, mm-hmm. because that's the only way you can learn. Uh, yeah, and and why learning and expanding our point of view is not something everyone is actively seeking. I may have to zero in on that a little bit. It feels defensive, emotional in a weird way that, you know, why would you, I guess it's the fear of change. I'm going to give some thought to that when I'm quiet sometime. But again, freedom of expression is not a concept that really comes that naturally to people. Uh, you know, if you think of it in sort of a broader historical scale where, uh, you know, people emerge from tribes where they would circle uh, their, their, wagons and and uh you know would be in a defensive posture and yeah. uh, outside ideas were threats um and through the enlightenment and the exchange of ideas uh society progressed and uh developed the ideas that our country is founded on but but those uh, those uh those threats were usually codified in, in religious structures and now religion true. has been superseded by politics which is very scary the political should that, not be the religious that absolutely and 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 vice versa uh but uh yeah. Uh, what has happened is that political disputes have hardened into belief systems. Yeah. Uh, and, and so there, it, it's hard to penetrate that uh, because you, again, have people simply shouting their beliefs at each other. Yeah. If, if anybody is, finds themselves doing that, just, just supplement ancient words or rather substitute old words like you use sinner or, or uh, <laughs> sinful or, you know, or a, uh, a, uh, 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 apostate you know think think of those put those religious words in where you're talking about political topics and all of a sudden you realize it is the precise same feeling and same logic as as religion had, had well, uh, held yeah that's that's one of the things that i sort of get at in my book because in talking about censors i begin with anthony comstock who was the prototypical professional um uh, was he the movie the, the movie guy, the funny looking guy that everyone from the thirties? Uh, no, Anthony Comstock started in the eighteen seventies. Oh wow! And was a vigilante who was responsible for helping get adopted a federal obscenity law. He was the secretary of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. I was going to say, back in those days, those guys almost always were connected to alcohol. Like, like, like they're anti. Well, they were, he, they, oh, were temp- was, they were in the temperance. Temperance societies. That, was, that yeah. was another of the vices that yeah, he, he I'm sure. failed against. I'm sure. But primarily, he, he was wanted to suppress anything, anything having to do with sex, including medical information yeah, yeah. And, and literature and, yeah. and, and everything else. He was sort of the first professional censor uh, in America, and his career lasted for some 40 years. Uh, but he was driven by a deep religious conviction that he was waging God's war 
Um, and I show how that same impulse repeats itself in censorship of music, of comic books, of television, of the anti-indecency crusades, not necessarily uh, motivated by religious fervor, but other belief systems that lead people to believe that they are absolutely right. They are certain that uh, they are right. They are on the side of God, even though they don't use that word. Exactly. And and they can marshal the power of government either to, to suppress the kinds of speech they consider to be evil or to mandate the kinds of speech they consider to be uniquely good. Um, and, and that problem repeats itself in history again and again. And, and again, do you, do you push back on that? Do you have a solution for that? Do you just think it needs to be just paid attention to so we don't have excesses? Well, I talk about how typically these um, efforts through history have failed, that ultimately Comstock was a colossal failure in a couple of ways. One is, he made the things he was trying to suppress wildly popular. <laughs> I give an example That's usually what happens, right? How it made yeah. more, more, more interested in, in the material. But that he also created a real resistance that led to the beginnings of First Amendment law. It, it really had not been addressed by the courts until after Comstock ended his career. And that led to the development of a robust body of legal protections for speech of various kinds that grew through the 20th century. Uh, and then the same thing with those who came after him, the efforts to suppress comic books, uh, successful for a time, devastating to the comic book industry in the 50s, uh, but ultimately a complete failure. The same with music censorship. Uh, and so those examples give me hope in a couple of ways. One is it shows that over time, society moves forward and is more willing to accept a broader range of ideas. And the other is that each of those episodes led to stronger legal protections for, for speech. And so while we have constant challenges, as you pointed out, um, I think we have the basis both culturally and legally to protect these values of free expression. I, I'm so glad you pointed that out. I think a lot of people are not aware that most of the um – energy, let's say, around the First Amendment was in the 20th century. But I think some people have the sense that the Founding Fathers set this forth as their crowning glory, but it was what it became. And if, I, if I'm right, it was really First World War and some of the pacifist movements that really started challenging it. Isn't that right? Well, that's when the Supreme Court started addressing it for yeah. the first time. Yeah. And it's only around 1918-19 that you begin to see the Supreme Court beginning to pay attention. But it wasn't until 1931 that the Supreme Court for the first time actually upheld a First Amendment case. Mm. So you're talking about well over a century uh, since the adoption of the First Amendment, 120, 130 years um, before uh, you had uh, uh, those protections recognized by the Supreme Court. Um, But throughout that, you saw a growing sort of public sentiment in support of free expression. But it was episodic. And, and that's why, you know, when people try and figure out the, the founding fathers said Congress shall make no law bridging freedom of speech or the press, they think, OK, that's the final word on it. But it's not right. Uh, what happened is they adopted a charter for our government that basically says government shall not be a censor. Mm-hmm. But it was through time and through a series of cases and case law development that we would confront different types and different flavors of censorship that then the courts would reach their decisions on. And over time, a body of First Amendment law and protections for free expression evolved in response to those, which is why my book focuses on censors, because we learn a lot about the nature of free speech and what the framers were intended to to protect by seeing what it was they were trying to prevent. It's so it's so fascinating to me that that this brilliant document, both both the Constitution and the and the amendments, you know, they didn't anticipate the specific challenges because there was such uh, uniformity of cultural attitudes and acceptance and the religious or all these things were just sort of they couldn't have imagined with the challenges that were going to come in the 20th century and yet the yet they did at the same time well, well, yeah 
Well, they did because it was an amazingly divisive time. We talk about the polarization we face today. They had that uh, and more in their politics. And they also had missteps like the Alien and Sedition Acts adopted in the administration of John Adams uh, that were designed to crush political opponents and set newspaper editors to jail. And yet we came back from those times. There were course corrections. And when uh, Thomas Jefferson became president, uh, the Alien and Sedition Acts uh, were repealed, and he, at the time, said that he found those laws to be as unconstitutional as if Congress had ordered us all to fall down and worship a graven image. <laughs> and so we gain these lessons of history, even if they aren't resolved at the time by the courts. And over time, uh, we perfected this document uh, and, and grew to grow into the system that the framers envisioned. And, and I just, it, to me, when I worry about the present moment, that, that is the one thing I go, I think this document, this genius document, our Constitution, with all its flaws and all its shortcomings and all its crazy deal-making to bring the South in and blah, blah, blah. And the, I, I agree, I agree. But it just is the protection. It protects us against the excesses that flow in moments like this as exemplified by many, many, many historical moments. Yes, but the, the kind of distrust that we face in the civic dialogue these days was exactly the kind of thing that the Constitution envisioned. Yep. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a document based on trust of one another. It was yeah. a document based on mistrust. And excessive. Excessive against and mistrust. Ambition, yeah. Power against yeah. power. It, yeah. It, Right. It yeah. checks and balances both in terms of the public in, in, in the democratic role, but in terms of the different branches of government vying for their spheres of influence. And it was designed to be a check uh, on the ability of government to continually grow and become more powerful. I've got to wrap up in a couple of minutes, but do you ever worry that the the movement away from a republic and more towards direct democracy will undo some of those um, restraints or some of those uh, uh protections the constitution gives us i I do worry about that because keep in mind the one word that does not appear in the constitution is democracy or majority do they have majority really there are yeah there are it uses the word majority but never uses the word democracy because it was a democratic republic yeah uh a representative republic uh so that uh you know the notion of having a pure democracy was exactly why they wrote the constitution to prevent that because yeah. the framers of the constitution were scholars of history and they knew that democracies through history had always sort of devolved into tyrannies. And that's why they set power against power from the various branches. I, I, I kind of feel like the, the, the more perfect union piece uh, of our system might be the, the thing that buffers the direct democracy and the, the fact that we are 50 states and, and each have their own systems. And I, I just kind of feel like that's the remaining really Republic part, Republican with a capital R, I guess that would be a smaller, um, that, that the fact that we have these independent states, what, what troubles me is that the only part of that that bothers me is the, the whole notion of a more perfect union seems to be just, missed by people they just don't understand that was the idea to find a more perfect union of the states uh that each can be a sort of a republican representative in the system although as as a first amendment advocate and defender of civil liberties i often find that i'm litigating against states and some of the more boneheaded measures uh designed to impose restrictions come from state governments. I, I, I get that, and I get that's why people uh, are so enthusiastic about it, the federalism, the federalist system, but uh, okay, but yeah, but still. <laughs> yeah, but still. Thank God we have it. <laughs> but when it comes to protection of rights, yeah. I, you know, I believe that it's a document of limited powers and expansive rights. Yeah. And when it comes to rights, you do need a minimum established by the federal constitution for what civil liberties yeah. are going to be protected. Yeah. 
and that governs the states every bit as as it does the federal yeah, government. I, I agree, and, and I and I understand that that's why many people have a deep enthusiasm for the the union as opposed to the independent states or the states' rights. And I get it, I get that, and yet still, <laughs> yet still, thank God we've got the independent states. Well, listen, this has been a fascinating conversation. I cannot. I'm sorry, I've not read the book ahead of time, but I have to. I feel like I'm going to need to study it, so it's, it, it would never have gotten done properly. It's the mind of the censor and the eye of the beholder, the First Amendment and the censor's dilemma. I love the idea of the historical sweep. This is exactly what Robert and I have been talking about. We all need to do. Our, and, and look for Robert. I'm sure you must be doing interviews. I heard some interviews with you earlier. That's why I said to Gary, please get this gentleman. Um, but I'm sure this these kinds of thoughts uh, you're exposing on podcasts elsewhere as well, yes? Uh, yes, it, yeah. it's true. And uh, one of the things that I do want to stress is the book is not a law book. No, I get that. Yeah, it's a public, it's public consumption, but I still feel like I want to study it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I would never dream of opening a law book, just so you know. That, that's that, that would, <laughs> sorry, I wouldn't even go near that. But I want to, I yeah, want to read, I, I want to read the mind of the censor. Yeah, mainly, it's a book of stories, including the story of how the FBI tried to restrict the song "Louie Louie." Oh, that's hysterical. But I, I love the the idea that you're plumbing the mind of the censor. It's a great way to frame this. So, uh, congratulations. Uh, well, is there me. is there a website or anything you'd like to send people to? Uh, yes. Uh, the, you can go to my website, which is mindofthecensor.com, uh, or the book is available pretty much wherever books are sold, including you know Amazon or Barnes & Nobles. Or, uh, you can go to the Cambridge uh, University uh, Press website and get a 20% discount uh, with the uh, discount code CORN21, C-O-R-N. Writing that down. Thank you for that. 20%, 20% discount for our listeners. Corn21 at Cambridge. All right. Cambridge University Press will do that. Robert Corn Revere, thank you for writing the book and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. And uh, we'll see everyone next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D R D R E W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Mm-hmm.